Welcome to Consider the Constitution, the podcast that cuts through the noise and provides insight into constitutional issues that directly affect every American. Hosted by Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey and featuring interviews with constitutional scholars, policy and subject matter experts, heritage professionals, and legal practitioners, we examine the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. Consider the Constitution is brought to you by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. Hello, and welcome back to Consider the Constitution. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey, Director of the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. This December 15th marks 232 years since the Bill of Rights was added to the U.S. Constitution. And as our listeners likely know, it almost wasn't so. If the power of the federal government is limited to what's in the Constitution, do we really need to explicitly state the rights individuals have? This is a question that sparked debate at the 1787 Constitutional Convention. And this question was on Madison's mind as well. On today's episode, we're exploring the story behind the drafting and ratification of the Bill of Rights. Our guest speakers, Suzanne Moore and Benjamin Eckert, are joining us from Independence National Historical Park, a unit of the National Park Service located in Philadelphia. Suzanne Moore is a park ranger of interpretation at Independence National Historical Park. She's been at the park since 2019 and previously worked at Gateway National Historical Recreation Area. Suzanne has a master's degree in history from Monmouth University. She has previously taught American and world history at both the community college and university levels. Benjamin Eckert also works in interpretation at Independence National Historical Park and has been there for 11 years. He recently helped complete the park's daybook of the Constitutional Convention, which can be seen on the park's website. Suzanne and Ben, welcome to Consider the Constitution. Thanks so much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Katie, for letting us come on to your podcast. Now, I'm curious to know more about the historical significance of your park. What's the connection between the Bill of Rights and Independence National Historical Park? And what's the difference between Independence Hall and Congress Hall? So basically every step of the creation of the Constitution has some sort of linkage to our park buildings. Um, so the Constitution was created in Independence Hall, which is the same building where the Declaration of Independence had been debated over and signed 11 years earlier. And then when Pennsylvania ratified the United States Constitution, that also happened inside Independence Hall. For the first year under the uh, Constitution, the federal government was headquartered in New York City. But then for the next 10 years, 1790 to 1800, the United States government had its capital in Philadelphia. So the Bill of Rights was created by the United States Congress in New York City and then ratified and became part of the Constitution while the United States Congress was meeting in a building on the same block as Independence Hall. And that building is known today as Congress Hall. I, for one, am more familiar with Independence Hall. That's the building I've personally heard of. Congress Hall, it sounds very interesting. I'm wondering, Ben, can you set the scene at Independence Hall? What's going on at that building? with the Bill of Rights and why the Bill of Rights was not included during the 1787 Constitutional Convention. Why didn't we get these first 10 amendments at that time? So it's interesting because the Bill of Rights doesn't come up for almost the entire Constitutional Convention. There had been bills of rights in most of the state constitutions prior to this point, 
But during the Constitutional Convention, it almost doesn't come up at all. So the first time it's recorded in Madison's notes is September 12th. So that's five days before the end of the convention. And to kind of set the the scene for you here, all of the hard work of making the Constitution has almost been entirely accomplished by September 12th. So they've created a first draft and then they've gone through that draft point by point, rehashed a lot of the really painful arguments that they'd already had at that point, had to make those difficult compromises a second time. Now they've agreed on the Constitution enough that there's kind of a final draft on the table. So in this last week of the Constitutional Convention, there's not any sort of major work that anyone's anticipating needing to be done. And kind of on a lot of these last couple of days of the convention, people are kind of just spitballing whatever ideas they want to quick squeeze into the Constitution before the cake is totally baked. So it's mostly kind of small bore proposals. And on September 12th, it's one of these days when they're just kind of talking about random odds and ends and two different delegates in the convention lament that the Constitution does not guarantee a right to jury trials and civil cases. If you were to ask most Americans what what part of the Bill of Rights they most treasure, they probably would not say, well, thank goodness I have a right to a jury trial in a civil case. But two people in the conventions felt strongly about that. And this leads George Mason of Virginia to say, well, that's a perfect example of why this Constitution needs a Bill of Rights. Does anybody else want to go in on a resolution for a Bill of Rights with me? And the person who takes them up on that author is Elbridge Gary of Massachusetts. And if you're a student of the Constitutional Convention, that kind of strikes you already because the two people who are putting forward this resolution to add a Bill of Rights are two of the three people who in a couple of days are going to refuse to sign the Constitution. And it's pretty clear at this point of the convention that they are not down with the program in the same way that everybody else is. So they're kind of a little bit gadflies at this point. So Gary and Mason propose a Bill of Rights, and then there's a very limited debate recorded after that point. Roger Sherman of Connecticut says, well, we don't need a Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution because the states all have their own Bills of Rights for the most part, and the federal government under the Constitution isn't going to have any authority to go against the state's Bills of Rights. And Mason then replies quite accurately that the Constitution's Supremacy Clause gives the United States Constitution supreme authority. The United States Constitution overrules anything in the state constitutions. So the state's bills of rights, by Mason's thinking, aren't any protection against the federal government's potential violation of Americans' civil liberties. So he doesn't buy Sherman's reasoning at all. But then they hold the vote right after that brief exchange. There's not any further debate. And in the Constitutional Convention, the way voting works is it's not individual delegates offering their yay or nay. The states are voting um, as delegations. So we don't know how every individual delegate voted. But what we do know is that unanimously the states voted against the idea of adding a Bill of Rights to the Constitution. So it was a brief debate and then they decided not to put it in. And I think the human element here might be, too, if, if you're looking at the kind of letters that the framers of the Constitution are sending to their families, sending to their their kind of correspondence towards the end of the convention. They're so eager to go home. They've been in Philadelphia for four months. A lot of them are having money issues because they thought they would be here for less time than this. So they don't have enough money to keep paying their boarding houses. So you can almost imagine 
the sound of everyone's eyes rolling up into the back of their heads when Mason and Gary say, oh, let's add a bill of rights. We swear it won't take that long. It'll be a quick project when so much that came before that point theoretically could have been a quick project, but sure wasn't. I appreciate you setting that scene because it says a lot about where the delegates mindset was at that point in time. As you mentioned, it's fall 1787. The delegates have been there for months and months. In previous episodes, we've talked about how they're cloistered in Independence Hall. It's hot, humid. And as you mentioned, they are ready to go home. They do not want to put in, you know, this extra work to think about the Bill of Rights, even though it sounds like some delegates were in favor of it. Now, I want to ask Suzanne if she can give us some context and background on Congress Hall, which is also part of the park, but it's one of those buildings we don't hear as much about. So, Suzanne, how does Congress Hall fit into this long journey of creation and implementation of the Bill of Rights? So, first of all, to pick up where Ben left off, once the Constitution has been signed inside Independence Hall, Now it's going to go to the states for their ratification. And we will see states like Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey be the first three to quickly get that ratified by the end of 1787. So they're the first three states. Once everything is said and done by June of the following year, now Congress, which was the National Congress under the Articles of Confederation, is now going to start to be converted into the Congress as we know it today with the House of Representatives and the Senate. But again, they're staying up in New York City. So once everything starts to really form into the government that we have seen today in 1789, including George Washington becoming the nation's first president, it's all being done up there. And while they are there, they're going to be taking the Constitution and starting to go over it, saying, OK, this is what they have planned for us down in Philly. Now we need to actually make it work. And they're going to start making it work up there in New York, including with the Bill of Rights between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists arguing over whether or not a Bill of Rights is actually needed. While they are starting to fight over this, they're also eventually the following year in 1790, and I'll get back to the ratification of the Bill of Rights in just a moment. But in 1790, they're looking over the Constitution in other areas as well, and they realize, wait a minute, New York City is not constitutionally fit for a capital city. We have to make one that's not within the jurisdiction of a state. And therefore, through the Residency Act of 1790, through various negotiations that all went into that, they are going to pick land from Maryland and Virginia along the Potomac River and have those two states secede that land to the federal government to make their own city, the city of Washington, in the district, not state, of Columbia. And they uh, will take about 10 years to build this new city. And... To make things a little more centrally located and to go to a much larger city with 40,000 residents approximately at the time, they're going to move everything to Philadelphia. But before they do, they will be up there in New York in 1789 putting together the Bill of Rights. James Madison will write up uh, 19 amendments first 
And he will propose that in June of 1789. But Congress isn't even going to start looking at it through the House of Representatives until July. And they're going to be looking at it. And one of the people that Ben had mentioned, Roger Sherman, who really wasn't all about this to begin with, but he is the one who will say, all right, if we're going to go through with this, we are not going to interject the amendments into the Constitution itself. It's going to be more like an addendum at the end. So that's why if you ever look at the amendments, they're not in any particular order of importance. They're in order of how they would appear if they were actually put into the Constitution itself. The House will allow it to go through with 17 to the Senate. The Senate will look through it in August of that year, making 26 changes, condensing it down to 12. And then the Senate will approve those 12. There's a joint House committee and Senate with uh, that will look over those proposals of the 12. And by the end of September, they are ready to go to the states for their ratification. And then by the time they learn that the states have ratified it, it will be in Congress Hall down here in Philadelphia. And the Congress had moved in in December 1790. It was not meant to be their building. It was the Philadelphia County Courthouse. But Philadelphia was trying to entice Congress to stay entirely and to ditch all plans for that Washington, D.C., but that is not going to work there. When they do receive word on ratification in this building, they will only find out that there are 10 that are ratified out of the 12. And they needed 11 ratification votes in order for this to happen. And actually, by this point, they have a new state. Vermont just became a state nine months earlier and beats out one of the original 13 in ratifying it. And actually will beat out three others, Massachusetts, Georgia, and Connecticut, who will not ratify those amendments, the Bill of Rights, until this sesquicentennial, 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights in March and April of 1939. So Congress Hall is where the United States Congress is based when the Bill of Rights is ratified. Now, can you talk about... What is going on in terms of the ratification scorecard when President Washington announces to Congress January 18th, 1792, that the Bill of Rights has been properly ratified? So Thomas Jefferson actually kept a scorecard because as secretary of state, he would be learning about who is ratifying what. The Bill of Rights was not just one package deal where everybody just said yes to the entire thing. It was amendment by amendment. So he was keeping tally with a scorecard that you can actually see through the Library of Congress. And the only thing is he just did not include Vermont, but maybe he wasn't taking Vermont into consideration. We would have to really dive into any thoughts of that scorecard if he kept any notes on it in particular. But he was watching as they were going through who was going for which amendments. Amendments one, which is not the same amendment one that we have today, still has not yet made it onto the Constitution. That was about an algorithm of how to figure out the number of representatives per state based on population numbers. The second one was about congressional pay. If a Congress member wants to give themselves a pay raise, they have to win the next election in order to get that raise. That will not join the Constitution until 
the 1990s when after a college student had decided to look more into this and made the push to see if they can get more ratification votes for this because there was no sunset clause, no expiration date. So those two were left off. But as others came through, 3 through 12, which is what we know today as 1 through 10, they're the ones that the states were really going for when they were ratifying. I find it fascinating that this amendment you referenced, the second about congressional pay, is coming back into conversation in the 1990s, almost two centuries later. It's it's interesting how history is always a cycle. Now, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about early cases in which the Bill of Rights was either tested or challenged in some way. In Congress Hall, one of the first challenges was with the Sedition Act, which we know combined with the Alien and Sedition Acts. But the Sedition Act was about saying that someone cannot challenge, criticize, write libel things against the Adams administration. And this really comes down to a partisan debate between the Federalists and now the Democratic Republicans. The Adams administration was predominantly Federalist because the vice president who back then won the vice presidency simply for being the first runner up in the presidential election. That would be Thomas Jefferson. Basically, at the time, John Adams's former best friend, now arch nemesis, and he was a Democratic Republican. And we see how they're going to be arguing their different respective parties arguing over how to interpret the Constitution. And we have one particular person sitting there in the House of Representatives in Congress Hall. His name is Matthew Lyon. He is from Vermont. He is a Democratic Republican. And he has a tumultuous time in Congress because, first of all, he gets into a physical fight with another member of Congress. That person's name was Roger Griswold, a Federalist from Connecticut. They start having an argument in January of 1798. And again, it's over politics and how to approach, in this case, see if they can oust somebody from the House of Representatives. And instead of keeping it on task, the two start turning to personal insults with one another. And Matthew Lyon spit in the other guy's face. So Griswold is not going to accept any apology from Lyon. And even though Lyon does so to Congress and around mid-February of that year, they come into Congress. The session had really not yet started for the day, but nonetheless, Griswold decides to take his cane and start smacking Lion with this. Lion runs to a fireplace, gets the tongs out, and they start dueling in the middle of Congress Hall. So there's a bit of tumultuous going on between those politics that we see that had stemmed from the Bill of Rights. But from there, Lion continues with his tumultuous time when he starts writing public letters against John Adams. You see, at this time, they have been dealing with the French Revolution, the upcoming quasi-war, and he's, being a Democratic Republican, is not happy with how 
John Adams is going against this and doesn't like the idea that now you can't speak out against the administration, but he does so anyway. Long story short, he ends up four months in prison for this. And he will get reelected into Congress from prison. And these alien sedition acts are supposed to be expiring March 3rd, 1801, day before Thomas Jefferson's inauguration, for he will beat John Adams in the election of 1800. Those acts in part help with not re-election for Adams. And afterwards, anyone who would be in jail for these sedition acts, Jefferson will be pardoning them. I am visualizing Lyons and Griswold on the floor of Congress, dueling it out with the cane and a fire poker. That's quite an interesting story connected to that place. Now, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about how the Bill of Rights affects us today, how it was either interpreted kind of over the centuries and why it matters so much to Americans and aspiring Americans in the 20th and 21st century. So with the Bill of Rights, it really opened up a lot to how they can interpret the Constitution. What does the Bill of Rights do? So a lot of times it comes down to, say, the federal government versus the state government. And a lot of people over time felt that the Bill of Rights solely went to the federal government, that it didn't apply to the state government. Now, if we can rewind for a second back to when James Madison made his initial proposal of those 19 amendments back in June of 1789 up in New York, one of the amendments that he had wanted to put in was saying that what they were doing with these Bill of Rights would also apply to the states. It passed the House. It did not pass the Senate. And we won't see anything relatable to that until following the Civil War in 1868 with the passage of the 14th Amendment, which then really is starting to settle that particular debate about having the Bill of Rights go also towards the states. However, even with all this going on through the 19th century, we really don't see much movement with the Bill of Rights being upheld in courts necessarily because it was looked at more as like a promissory note in the earlier part of American history. But come the 20th century, now they're really saying maybe this is something we should be upholding and using in our court system. So that is one way of doing that. But we see with the First Amendment, for example, with that Sedition Act, the courts never overruled it. We just waited for to see Thomas Jefferson allow it to expire in that March date of 1801. Then we see other similar acts come up, such as during World War One, the Espionage Act. Again, couldn't talk about the war in a derogatory way, couldn't speak out against it. But at the same time, the courts didn't step in to say that this affects the First Amendment. Eventually, things were allowed to expire or were done away with. Some items of that might still be in play. So we see sometimes that the courts don't necessarily step in to referee it. Uh, So it has to be brought up on an individualized basis if it is to be challenged. Thank you for that analysis. 
It's interesting that the Bill of Rights over time, it sounds like, is interpreted differently. And it's very much interpreted in the context of what's happening in America at that moment. You reference Suzanne, for example, the Civil War and the aftermath of that with the passage of the 14th Amendment, as well as World War One, where the federal government wants to kind of instill this sense of community and camaraderie among Americans during wartime. And the Espionage Act, while perhaps could have been challenged by the First Amendment, wasn't. I want to thank both Suzanne and Ben for joining us today from Independence National Historical Park. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, especially as we mark December 15th, this date that the Bill of Rights was ratified. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And also, we look forward to seeing any of our listeners to come to Independence National Historical Park in Philadelphia. And we hope folks will also join us at James Madison's Montpelier. Our two places are telling the story of America's founding. And I want to thank everybody listening to the podcast. I hope you'll subscribe and share the show with friends and family. We'll be taking the rest of December off for the holidays, but we look forward to seeing you in the new year when we launch our next episode on January 10th. Happy holidays, everyone.